it's Wednesday, the 10th of January, and welcome to Korea 24. I'm your host, Won Jang-ho. In a further escalation of rhetoric, North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has reportedly described South Korea as the principal enemy and that he has no intention of avoiding war. We'll have the latest in news briefing shortly. For our in-depth today, we'll connect with a reporter at the 2024 Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas to find out about the tech trends to look out for this year. And coming up for Korea Book Club, we delve into a collection of essays on Korean literary translation by some of the most renowned Korean literary translators. We have all that and more on today's Korea 24. North Korean leader Kim Jong-un has given a stern warning directed at South Korea. He said he has no intention of avoiding war, and he went further by calling the South the principal enemy of the regime. For more on this story and our other headlines from today, I'm joined in the studio by KBS World Radio News Editor Daniel Che. Daniel, hello. Hello there, Jungle. So this comes after Kim recently said that the North no longer seeks to unify with the South. Can you give us more details on Kim's latest comments released through the regime's state media? Sure thing. Korean Central News Agency reported on Wednesday that Kim made the remarks while visiting munitions factories Monday and Tuesday. It said Pyongyang will not unilaterally start a war on the Korean peninsula, but that it will not shy away from conflict either. Kim warned there will be no hesitation in annihilating the South by mobilizing all means if it attempts to use military force against North Korea or threaten its sovereignty and security. Kim reportedly called for enhancement of military capabilities for self-defense as well as its nuclear and war deterrence, accusing the enemy state of inciting confrontation and arms buildup. North Korea has been ramping up hostile rhetoric against South Korea since Kim called for accelerated war preparations in a year-end major party meeting last month. South Korea's unification ministry slammed Kim's remarks. What did it say? On Wednesday, the unification ministry said Kim continued revealing an ambition to forcibly unify the peninsula uh, with mentions of war while visiting major munitions factories this week, that North Korea has persistently attempted to ratchet up military tensions through threats of armed provocations since the year began, while instilling hostility against the South in its people. The ministry calls such moves old-fashioned tactic to shake up South Korean society. It urged Pyongyang to stop reckless military threats and psychological warfare, that there would be resolute response to any provocations, and advised the regime to instead pursue normalization of inter-Korean relations. Meanwhile, top security officials from South Korea and the U.S. discussed developments related to North Korea. What do they cover? According to the White House, South Korea's National Security Office Director Tang Wo-jin and U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan held talks over the phone on Tuesday. The two officials condemned Pyongyang's transfer of ballistic missiles to Moscow and their use against Ukraine as a violation of multiple UNSC resolutions. They said such acts undermines the global non-proliferation regime and has significant security implications for Europe, the Korean Peninsula, and the Indo-Pacific region as well. The officials also exchanged assessments on the North's recent series of artillery attacks near the western inter-Korean maritime border. They vowed to maintain close collaboration on shared security challenges to bolster peace and security. Okay, let's step away from inter-Korean-related headlines and turn to some other stories. President Yoon Sung-yeol has vowed to allow run-down houses over 30 years old 
to be rebuilt without a safety inspection. So what brought on such a statement? Well, he did indeed. He made the pledge on Wednesday at a public forum on housing in Kuoyang as part of drastic deregulations and redevelopment and reconstruction. Yun seemingly criticized the influence of political ideology by past administrations on housing regulations and policies, including stringent rules applied to redevelopment eligibility. The president said such policies led to soaring housing prices with the public bearing the brunt. Yun also expressed intend to remove heavy taxes on ownership of multiple homes. He believes industries will not develop while the working and middle class suffer if heavy taxes are levied on ownership. Meanwhile, the main opposition Democratic Party chair, Lee Jae-myung, has been discharged from hospital. This comes eight days after he was attacked. So what's the latest? While stepping out of Seoul National University Hospital on Wednesday, he apologized to the public for causing concern and vowed to spend the rest of his life working for the people. He highlighted the need to end warlike politics and expressed hope the attack will serve as a turning point to end politics of hatred and confrontation and restore mutual respect and coexistence. In politics, he was stabbed in the neck last Tuesday by a man in his 60s while inspecting the site of delayed construction for a new airport in Kadok Island in Busan. He received emergency treatment and was transported to Busan National University Hospital and then was airlifted to Seoul National University Hospital for surgery. And we have the latest on the suspect of that stabbing attack. He reportedly did it to prevent Lee Jae-myung from becoming president. That's what we are learning on Wednesday's briefing on the investigation results. The Busan Metropolitan Police Agency said the man in his 60s, surnamed Kim, committed the crime because he felt that the DP chief was not being properly punished as his trial was delayed. The police believe after an examination of seized items and a digital forensics investigation, as well as a call history and trace analysis, that Kim had no accomplice. As he was transferred to a prosecutor's office before reporters, Kim apologized for causing concerns. Police earlier arrested a man in his 70s suspected of being Kim's accomplice, but released him after he was found. The suspected accomplice promised to send the suspect's so-called excuse note to the media and the suspect's family once the crime was committed. The Busan Metropolitan Agency, police agency that is, established an investigative headquarters consisting of 68 personnel and probed the case for nine days. And finally, we shift our attention to the Consumer Electronics Show taking place in Las Vegas. The whole pavilion at the venue is the biggest one to date. Can you tell us more? Biggest one to date it is, yes, over in Las Vegas at the CES, the world's biggest fair, for, fair, tech, for, fair event for tech firms, which began on Tuesday for a four-day run at the Seoul Metropolitan Government is operating its largest pavilion date. In the pavilion, total of 13 partner organizations, including the Seoul Business Agency, several universities, as well as 81 startup firms are displaying a wide array of innovative items ranging from healthcare, AI, and mobility. Among them, 18 received the CES Innovation Award this year. Seoul will also operate a networking program during the event to attract global investors and buyers. We've come a long way since having only 20 firms taking part in CES back in 2020. The municipal government has been supporting Seoul-based innovative firms with sales and in attracting investments. Seoul Mayor Oh Se-hun vowed to provide support R&D test beds and creative spaces to help innovative firms grow. Yes, and we'll have more from a reporter at the event coming up next. But first, we wrap up our news briefing here. Daniel, thank you for bringing us those headlines. Thank you so much for having me.
The 58th edition of the Consumer Electronics Show, or CES, kicked off on Tuesday in Las Vegas. It is the largest annual consumer tech conference, and it serves as a key platform for companies from around the world to introduce their new wave of products and technologies. This year's slogan is All Together, All On. But taking centre stage this year is artificial intelligence, which comes as no surprise after AI captured widespread attention in the tech sector over the past year. Developments in the auto sector are also grabbing the spotlight. To find out more about the event this year and what new consumer technologies are on the horizon, we're connecting with someone at the heart of the action. We have joining us on the line now Ethan Moon, reporter for the Career Herald, who's currently in Las Vegas covering CES. Mr. Moon, hello, and thank you for speaking with us today. Hello. So it's good afternoon there, I guess. Hello, <laughs> nice to meet you. Uh, I'm Ethan Moon. And as you said, I'm out in Las Vegas as a correspondent for the Consumer Electronics Show 2024. So thanks for inviting me here. Can you first briefly introduce CES for our listeners who may not be familiar uh, with the show? All right. So um, Consumer Electronics Show, it's often called CES for short. And I would say it's the most powerful global tech event. Um, So it's where you can see all the cool new stuff that's coming out in the tech world from personal devices to transportation, healthcare, sustainability. Um, And so it's happening right now in Las Vegas, in the Las Vegas Convention Center from January 9th to 12th. And I think in Korean time would be in from January 10th to 13th. And uh, it's it's really huge. There are more than 100,000 visitors here, more than 4,000 exhibitors. um, And from what I know, um, 1,200 startups that are showing off their amazing ideas. Yep. Right, and what's the atmosphere there like? Because it is a tech fair, but it's also uh, a high-profile one that attracts a lot of attention and stars. For example, this year, celebrities like K-pop star G-Dragon, actor Robert Downey Jr. and artist T-Pain have all been spotted at the event as well. I'm not sure if you've spotted any of them, but what's the atmosphere there like? Yeah, it's spotted G-Dragon. I was really lucky. <laughs> um, and uh, the photos that you see online about him uh, would be really funny. Um, but anyways, uh, it's been a pretty unique event this year, like you said, because CES has been usually very tech-heavy for, like, nerds. But now we, um, this year, I think I can definitely sense this vibrant, almost festive kind of atmosphere. So it's not just for tech enthusiasts. Um, it's also about fans and curious visitors and so G-Dragon, for instance, he was all over the place today uh, in Samsung LG SK sessions. And he said uh, he came here because he wanted to learn about AI and really dive into AI technologies. Uh, and you'd be really surprised. Uh, but it's you can see the reason because he has recently moved his company uh, to an entertainment company called Galaxy Corporation, which also does AI and metaverse business. So... You can see he, he was not just there for the camera. Hmm. Um, and then there was Robert Downey, yeah, Downey Jr. <laughs> and, and he uh, was this AI security startup. And that's also because his Instagram account was hacked in 2019. So he, that got him hooked on digital security. Um, so at this event, he's you know, helping this company unveil an AI tool to help monitor their kids' mental health through phone usage. And so um, from what I can see, uh, overall, CES used to be more about spec sheets. Mm. But because lately, 
has been uh, has seemed a bit similar. You know, there's not much innovation. But then last year there was this generative AI boom, and then that really spiced things up. And so I think this year they are capitalizing on that buzz, right? Um, bringing in all this. And so they are kind of bridging Hollywood, K-pop with Silicon Valley to draw in the general audience. And I think it's really working well. Yes, the event had some difficult years recently, especially because of the pandemic, of course. But it looks like it's got some of its buzz back. Uh, so tell us, what are some of the key themes or buzzwords of the event this year? Yeah, so of course, there's artificial intelligence. Um, you will see, uh, I mean, I see AI everywhere. Um, so much so that it has become all like cliche before um, I even see the products. But from smart home gauge, uh, smart home products to robots they can take care, um, uh, robots that take care of your pets, and um, uh, there's also this 3D printed teeth that look and feel real by you know taking pictures of your teeth and then they 3D print it. Mm. Um, and then automobiles are another big thing at CES. And so you think you you think oh, why are automobiles considered tech? They are not really considered as devices. But then it's since a few years ago, um, automobiles um, they took their uh, place as one major pillar of CES because many uh, tech CEOs they they are now calling automobiles cars the ultimate mobile device that you take with you. So um, automobiles are where all the new novel innovations are happening and. Um, they're getting more autonomous. They're getting more connected. Um, and so Honda, even Honda, who has never um, cared about uh, electric vehicles, they have unveiled their own uh, EV series, which they um, which they uh, claim that are lighter and thinner than other vehicles. Um, and then um, lastly, there was also a resurgence of AR, VR um, technologies because it has kind of lost... Um, attention in recent years, but then because Apple announced the Apple Vision Pro headset last year, uh, people are now um, coming back to this new trend of AR, VR um, technology. Right, so AR, uh, sorry, AI, uh, AR, VR technology and uh, automobiles, the mobility sector, uh, that is, those are some of the key themes. As you said, the tech and mobility sector have uh, become uh, integrated into each other in the last decade or so. So CES has become one of the fastest growing auto exhibitions in the world because of this. And it looks like that trend is continuing this year as well. Uh, any interesting technologies or gadgets that have been making headlines uh, this year in particular? Yep. So uh, I can't, I can't not avoid talking about AI products again. Um, so one of the most um, visible, tangible products they can see uh, were LG and Samsung's transparent TVs. So they can switch between transparent mode and regular TV mode using AI to adjust the picture set, the picture settings. Um, so based on the context of what's happening within movies and TV shows. So it's not doing this transparency just for show. Um, it is using AI to to surround you with this, um, the context of your your house. Um, and then Microsoft has announced new Windows PCs that come with a new button. Like it's a, it's a hardware button, but then uh, it's a dedicated button to use 
Microsoft AI assistant called Copilot. And so um, you think it's kind of kind of a gimmick that nobody would use, but then um, it actually works for the first time for Microsoft. Um, they are using this ChatGPT powered uh, Copilot search technology that's now baked into Windows. Mm. So you can really ask your computer um, to, you know, how do I organize my Windows? Yeah, my Windows as in the Windows of your programs. Um, and you can, you don't have to now <laughs> fiddle with your settings and stuff. And you, of course, you can search the web. You can ask it any question in any way you want. Um, and then, um, so there were, so these are some uh, major AI technologies that caught my attention. Um, and uh, one, one of my personal favorites, uh, I know it's going to sound uh, really nerdy, but there was, there was this pair of wireless earbud, earbuds, um, earphones that they measure the sounds that your ears produce in response to external sounds. And then it, it can create a unique sound profile for your ears. And so you can adjust the sound qualities, the sound profile mm. of the music that you're listening. Yeah, so that was an example of a wearable device that I was uh, really into. <laughs> yeah. Right. So clearly AI integrated into everything, it seems, uh, this year. Uh, it is the uh, key word, definitely. Uh, we also talked about mobility in the car industry. I understand that there were some other areas in that sector that you wanted to highlight. CES, as we said, it's an opportunity to see the, uh, the newest, the smartest, most innovative concepts in mobility. What kind of innovations are we looking at uh, this year? Um, recent innovations in mobility have always been about you know, autonomous driving and electrification. And Tesla has been at the forefront of these innovations, but they haven't been able to deliver it yet, the full uh, self-driving. And so at this year's yes, there are still a lot of startups, companies showing off auto- autonomous driving technologies, but that's not really what sets this year's um, yes apart. Uh, this year's yes there are uh, there are companies that move beyond move beyond the the land vehicles on land to vehicles in the air. So um, SK and Hyundai. Uh, Hyundai has this another special division um, startup called Supernol that makes practically um, flying taxis. I would say. Wow! Yeah, so, so they look like a better designed helicopter, but. Because these are, they run on electricity, and they are much more, uh, much smarter, and they have much simply, much more simplified designs. So they can um, act like helicopters without right. the wind and the noise, and all the hassle that come with it. So it is considered to be the next generation of transport. And then, so SK and Hyundai they showcase the next generation um, models of of those right. um, air taxis. But of course, right. these concepts now uh, to be commercialized for you to really be able to use it. Mm. It's going to be until 20, 20, um, 2028. Right. So there's a long way to so, go. You've mentioned some Korean companies there already, SK, Hyundai and LG at this year's uh, event. Some 500 entities from South Korea are taking part, including major corporations and startups looking to unveil their latest advances. Which Korean companies have been making headlines? Yeah, so Korean companies, they absolutely, um, they really shined uh, at CES this year. They snagged, um, I think, more than 140 out of 300 innovation awards. That's almost half. And uh, especially startups, 
startups were uh, impressive, um, especially startups from um, the Seoul metropolitan city. Um, healthcare and AI uh, were big. Um, this startup called DN Corporation stood out um, with their simple swap test, identifying genes linked to ADHD and obesity. Um, and then there was this Meta Immune Tech from Korea University, uh, turning around immunity assessments in just two hours. Um, and then there were wearable robots from Hurotech. Mm. Um, smart mirrors for elderly care. Uh, and then there, were, there was a company that does dementia diagnosis with, with scans, wow. with smell. So all so, sorts of uh, all yeah. sorts of technologies, all sorts of companies are representing Korea at CES this year. Uh, but I understand that there's only one representative from a Korean company uh, speaking at the event this year, and that's uh, Chung Gi-san, the vice chairman of HD Hyundai, the shipbuilding and heavy equipment company. What significant significance does this have? Yeah, so his presence at CES is really um, noteworthy because if you consider the traditional landscape of Korean corporations, they're primarily about manufacturing. So you would consider them to be pretty old-fashioned. Um, so Chang's participation at this event signals a shift to a more, more modern corporation. So they are like saying, look, we are not just about shipbuilding, we are at the forefront of building the future. So what's exciting is, what's exciting is HD Hyundai has been quietly making strides in fields like AI, digital twin technology and robotics. And he is making his address tomorrow morning, local time. I'm gonna be there, I have to be there. <laughs> um, his, and his address is expected to shed light on how they are transforming construction equipment made by HD Hyundai. Um, they are literally making um, bulldozers and excavators that can work on their own. They can dig um, and then can be controlled remotely. And so that's the kind of innovation and the new type of image that he is trying to push, in my opinion. Well, it sounds like there's a lot going on and much for you to digest as well. But then looking at the event overall, just to wrap up, what do you think you can project about the consumer tech trends uh, from the event this year? What does the event tell us about the year in tech for 2024? I think anyone will be able to expect all kinds of companies adopting into everything they do, uh, almost such that it becomes too cliche. Um, but then other than that, all the many of the technologies showcased here in CES, um, they are very futuristic. So their timelines are far, you know, behind in the future. So if you're talking about this year, I think, as I said before, will be more about AR and VR because there were a lot of innovations, uh, content for VR headsets and AR headsets, but then it kind of died down um, because there were not enough applications and the, the hardware. Um, I don't know if um, the listeners have used uh, any Oculus in any exhibition. The, the quality is really bad. Um, but then because Apple released this really high quality um, VR headset last year, um, people are banking on this idea again. And so I uh, can see that Sony made 
a huge unveiling of what they called um, spatial, spatial as in space, spatial mm. content creation system um, designed for businesses uh, so that they can work remotely with VR headsets. Uh, so you can see Sony is now back on VR game uh, after staying quiet for a few years. And you can see um, how uh, this is going to trigger a resurgence of AR and VR mm. technologies and content movies introduced this year. Right. That is interesting. That's something to definitely to look out for this year, it seems then. Well, we appreciate you taking the time to speak to us today from Las Vegas. We've been speaking to Ethan Moon from the Korea Herald. Thank you once again for your time today. Thank you. Welcome to the Korea 24 Stock and Forex Update. The benchmark Korea Composite Stock Price Index fell 19.29 points, or 0.75% on Wednesday, to close at 2,514.98. The tech-heavy Kosdaq also fell, losing 9.18 points, or 1.04%, to close at 875.46. On the foreign exchange, the local currency fell 4.41 against the U.S. dollar to close at 1,320.11. You can check Korean stock and forex closings at world.kbs.co.kr. It's our daily segment next, Korea Trending. This is where we take a look at some other news stories that have been trending online. And for that, once again this week, we have with us in the studio contributor Diane Yu. Diane, hello, it's good to see you. Hello, Jago. Okay, let's kick things off with the first story. What do you have for us? In Korea, pork belly is considered one of Korean soul foods for its relatively cheap price and delicious taste. It's such an important product that the government intervenes whenever there's either a supply crunch or a quality problem. And just on Tuesday, the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs distributed a quality control manual containing recommended standards for indicating the level of fat content in pork belly. Yes, the ministry intervened because there was a recent incident, right, where Mm. people received pork belly as a gift from the government, Mm -hmm. but the quality was shockingly poor. Right. On December 25th, a posting uploaded by a person who received a thank you gift from Incheon City's Bichuhor district for making a donation to the hometown love system sparked controversy online. This is a system that went into effect last year and provides tax deductions and gifts to individuals who make donations to their hometown. And that money is then used for the welfare of residents. And for the writer, they received pork belly in exchange for a donation. However, when they opened it, the meat was mostly fat. Accordingly, the Ministry of Agriculture, Food and Rural Affairs handed out the pork belly quality control manual uh, to livestock industry officials. Yes, the picture of the meat has been going viral. It is rather ridiculous. Mm. If you imagine strips of pork belly, you would expect maybe 80, 90 percent of the strip to be pink meat and Mm. maybe 10, 20 percent white fat. But uh, these strips were 90 percent white. It was quite ludicrous. Right. Uh, But the controversy has been exacerbated by the fact that the government has distributed these manuals before. This is not the first time that the quality of pork belly has come under fire. You're correct. The manual was also distributed in June. June last year. Previously, on March 3rd last year, a large-scale pork discount event was held to celebrate the so-called Samgyeopsal Day, or Pork Belly Day. At that time, pork belly with a lot of fat was distributed in large quantities, causing controversy, hence the distribution of the manual. 
Right, so even though both of these incidents, incidents are about discounted or even free pork belly products, still, there's a level of standard that people would expect. Right. Uh, what does the manual say exactly? The manual contains methods for removing fat from wholesale pork belly and small package ones sold at retail. In particular, in the case of small package pork belly sold at large supermarkets, the government recommends that there should be only be up to one centimeter of fat on the meat and excessive amounts should be discarded. Yes, it's unfortunate that such guidance has to be issued in the first place, but hopefully such guidance will help deter such further Mm. incidents. Let's get into our second story now. Audio for us. The number of younger people becoming addicted to online gambling is increasing in Korea. According to data analyzed by the Korea Problem Gambling Agency in 2022 on the age groups of online gambling suspects, those in their 20s accounted for the most at 28.8%. Then it was followed by people in their 30s, 40s, and 50s. There also have been reported cases of people in their 20s even getting private loans to gamble after after losing all of their fortune. Yes, this is very concerning. And from my understanding, this has become an increasing problem in recent years due to the fact that gambling has become more easily accessible online. Exactly. Through through various media such as websites and messaging apps, gambling, which was thought to be distant and difficult for the general public to access, has easily slipped into people's everyday lives. And with the gambling addiction of the younger generations emerging as a social problem, the police carried out a special crackdown on cyber gambling targeting youth in September last year, and they have arrested 314 adults and 39 teenagers as of November 2023. Yes, that's because essentially gambling is uh, banned in Korea. Right. Uh, Casinos and such are illegal. Mm. But this is still causing to be, uh, this is still an issue that we're seeing, and we're still far away from seeing a solution that would fix this social issue, right? Yes, the National Police Agency said that there are limits to the ability of investigative agencies to completely block youth access to gambling sites through crackdowns alone, and emphasized the need for an active and systematic education such as understanding the characteristics of teenagers who easily join in even though they recognize that it's a wrong pure culture, and warning them of the serious harm of online gambling. Meanwhile, the police plan on carrying out another special crackdown on online online gambling targeting youth by March. Yes, crackdowns are welcome, but hopefully authority is also able to help those with addictions as well. And this Mm. issue can be prevented from further spreading. Let's continue on to our last story. What else has been trending? Sledding, skating and skiing are the most popular winter activities to do in the snow. They can be so fun that people sometimes forget about one particular safety measure they need to remember, protecting their eyes. Experts point out that snow can be harmful to eye health due to its high reflectivity. According to Korea University Ansan Hospital on Wednesday, the sunlight reflectance of snow can reach 80%. When compared to grass or sandy beaches, which is generally around 20%, that's an alarmingly high number. Yes, this is known as snow blindness, and Mm. it's almost like a sunburn on your eyes. Those who uh, frequent snowy areas or ski parks may know about the risks already, but it could be something that first-timers might not even think about. Uh, It's all to do with the amount of ultraviolet rays, right? Correct. If your eyes are exposed to a large amount of UV rays reflected from the snow without special eye protection equipment, the cornea, which absorbs and filters ultraviolet rays, may be damaged, resulting in corneal burn. 
burns. Such burns can cause eye pain and redness, and in severe cases, vision loss and temporary night blindness, uh, night blindness can, may occur. Prolonged exposure to ultraviolet rays can cause damage not only to the cornea, but also the retina. So you should also be careful about corneal ulcers due to secondary infection. Okay, so how can we prevent corneal burns from happening? Wu Minji, a professor of ophthalmology at Korean University Ansan Hospital, recommends wearing goggles or sunglasses with a high UV protection index when doing outdoor activities in snowy fields to prevent burns. However, if you end up experiencing the symptoms of snow blindness, also known as photokeratitis, first soothe the burn area with a cold, wet towel or ice pack and seek medical attention from a specialist as soon as possible. With proper initial treatment, most corneal burns heal within a few weeks. Okay, that's all for our career trending segment today. Thank you for those stories, Diane, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Book Club, our weekly segment where we dive into the world of Korean literature and books through works available in translation and beyond. Joining me now in the studio is our literary critic, Barry Welsh. Barry, hello. It's great to see you again. Yes, hello. It's great to see you too. Okay, so what are we looking at this week? I understand that it's something a bit different. Yes, that's right. So we have a very interesting book to talk about this week. We're reviewing a collection of essays called The Birth of K-Literature, the story of how Korean literature became K-Literature. The Korean title is K-Munhake Tanseng, Hanguk Munhagul, K-Munhakuro, Mandun Bonyok Yagi. And it was just published at the very end of last year. The book was produced and compiled and has an introduction from Donggu University's professor Cho Ui Yon, who also worked with uh, Hanguk University's professor Yi Sang Bin. Uh, but Professor Cho is well known to me because he worked at, he's been working at Dongguk University in the Department of English Translation and Interpretation, but he's set to retire in February uh, after having worked at Dongguk for 35 years. Uh, and one of my wonderful students at Dongguk University, Kim Bo Yong, recently interviewed Professor Cho for the Dongguk Post student newspaper about why he produced this collection of translation-themed essays, and he said, despite the importance of translation, there is a noticeable lack of research and popular literature addressing the stories of Korean literary translators. Therefore, I aim to create a book that caters to public demand by capturing their narratives. Uh, And this book delves into the daily lives of translators who have been at the forefront of Korean literature translation, exploring the challenges they face and discussing the direction translation should take to make Korean literature more appealing to global readers. And uh, like he says, The Birth of K uh, K Literature is a collection of very thought-provoking essays uh, in English and Korean, uh, for the most part, focusing on some of the most successful translators uh, of Korean literature in recent years uh, and it offers a fascinating insight into the role of translation and I think it's genuinely a must-read for any fans of Korean literature or aspiring translators. Wow, I mean, this sounds amazing. A real treasure for those interested in translated Korean literature, especially at a time when K-literature is really enjoying the limelight. It Mm -hmm. sounds like a very timely and important book indeed. 
So tell us more. What's in it and how does this book enhance our understanding of modern Korean literature? Right, yeah. So like you said, uh, it, it, it really is a wonderful collection and the essays, they offer a, a very uh, profound and valuable insight into how translation has played a pivotal role in bringing Korean literary works to the global stage. Uh, and so the essays here, they're not just about the content of Korean literature, they're about this the, the transformation uh, of these works through the lens of translation. Uh, and the book discusses the you know, these sort of very complex dynamics between the original Korean te- text and their translations. Uh, and it emphasizes the creative challenges uh, and the ethical considerations that are faced by the translators. And so, for example, one of the most uh, interesting stories uh, in, one of, uh, in one of the essays is from Jamie Chang, who, of mm. course, we've reviewed many uh, translations. Uh, but she discusses, uh, Jamie discusses being asked to translate Kim Ji Young, born 1982, and thinking, what could be easier? We're both women, we're both Korean, we're the same age, this is going to be a piece of cake. Uh, and then realising uh, that actually, uh, in, uh, as as uh, as Jamie says, it was an illuminating and harrowing experience. Uh, and overall, uh, I think this book is a significant contribution to our understanding of the uh, you know, Korean literature's global journey. Uh, it goes beyond the surface of these uh, stories, uh, you know, it talks about books including The Vegetarian, The Disaster Tourist, and, and many, many more. And it delves into these sort of issues that we uh, that translators in, in, encounter. And I think by highlighting the, you know, this often unappreciated role or underappreciated role of translators, they shed light on how translations can alter, uh, enhance, or even sometimes perhaps distort the original message of a text. Mm. Uh, and the book also discusses the evolution of translation practices over time, reflecting how societal changes uh, and technological advances like AI and machine learning have impacted and are impacting uh, the field. And I think it's uh, uh, this uh, context is crucial for uh, appreciating the nuances of modern Korean literature in a global context. I mean, we've been very fortunate to have great literary translators on the show as guests and contributors, yeah. such mm-hmm. as Anton Her and Kim Ji-young. And I would say that we've learned over the years that translation is it's not a science, it's an art form, right, uh-huh. really. And mm-hmm. with that comes differences, artistic liberties, etc., because there is no such thing as a, as a perfect translation, right, sure. of course. Mm-hmm. Because of that, sometimes, as you've hinted, that the original meanings and nuances can be lost, but it seems like this book is trying to help refine that connection, or at least right. rethink about uh, that link and connection. So tell us more about the structure and contents of this book. I understand that most of the essays in the book, there is an English and Korean version available in there, but there are a handful where only Korean is available. And the essays are grouped into four parts, right? Right, yeah, that's correct. So uh, there's four sections in the book. The first part has a series of essays which are about the intricacies and challenges of translation. So it's not just about the language, it's about cultural nuance and context. Uh, and then in the second section delves into more controversial aspects of translation, like uh, you sort of hinted there, the debate between literal accuracy and creative interpretation. 
Uh, the third section discusses the relationship or the interplay between the authors and translators and the uh, perhaps the researchers and, and uh, highlights the collaborative uh, nature of literary translation. And then the fourth part critically examines the status of K literature in the uh, global uh, arena, so particularly within the uh, wider Korean wave. And so I think this uh, holistic approach gives readers a comprehensive view of the translation process and its impact on, on the literature that we're consuming in translation. Uh, and one of the essays uh, is a, a great demonstration of this. So Bruce Fulton's essay, and again, we've uh, reviewed many of uh, the Fulton's uh, translations, but he goes through and reflects on like several of uh, his most notable translations that he's worked on. So this includes uh, One Left by Kim Soom and uh, How in Heaven's Name by Cho chong Ne and Mina by Kim Sagwan, many, many more. Mm. And he says that the ultimate goal is to increase... Uh, empathy that's how he you know chooses books to work on uh, and he writes might not have in heaven's name validate the lives of those who have left their native korea forever might not mina uh, ultimately help change the south korean educational system from a chulsi uh, factory sort of a meaning uh, get ahead in the world factory to an environment where students are allowed to grow and develop as individuals and so you get this really uh, you know insightful and thought provoking commentary on a, a series of uh, a, a series of his translations. Well, it sounds like a fascinating insight into the mind of a translator, especially someone as uh, renowned as Bruce Fulton. Mm-hmm. What other ideas and themes emerge from this book? Right, yeah. So uh, one of the things they talk about is this uh, this idea of the complexity of translation as an art, an art form distinct in itself, uh, and then the ethical dilemmas that are faced by translators, uh, and then also just the, the sheer transformative power of translation in shaping the global perception of Korean literature. Uh, and some of the essays explore this tension between uh, maintaining the integrity of the original text and uh, adapting it to resonate with global uh, audiences. There's been some uh, controversies with with, uh, those types of issues over the past few years. But the book underscores the importance of uh, understanding cultural context uh, and then the translator's responsibility in bridging the cultural gaps. And so these themes, I think, are crucial for understanding how Korean literature has been perceived and received uh, internationally. And another one of the highlights in the book is Brother Anthony's essay. So again, we've reviewed many of Brother Anthony's uh, translations. Uh, and he concludes in his essay that Korean fi- or the Korean fiction which appeals to major world publishers is not gloomy and nationalistic. It is as entertaining and imaginative, sometimes as grotesque and hair-raising as any Korean movie, and shows that Korean writers have come a long way. Korean literature is now fully globalised, so much so that translators and agents have to struggle to keep up with it. Yes, Brother Anthony, another familiar name for our regular listeners Mm -hmm. of Korea Book Club. Okay, so it sounds like this book is a must-read for anyone interested in Korean literature, and the translation process then? Yeah, absolutely. So like a, like you said, it's a treasure trove for anyone interested in translation or Korean literature or just the impact of the Korean wave in general. So I think it's particularly insightful for aspiring uh, translators, uh, for literature students, for academics in the field of translation studies. It offers a deep dive into often overlooked aspects of translation, especially overlooked by general readers. And I think it makes it a valuable resource for anyone curious about the behind the scenes process that brings the Korean literature to life for global readers. 
Indeed, once again, it's called The Birth of K-Literature, the story of how Korean literature became K-Literature. I believe it's only available in Korea at the moment under the Korean title k Munage Tanseng. So hopefully it will be more available, more widely available sometime in the future. But for now, you'll have to look for it in Korean bookstores or Korean bookstores online. Barry, thank you for introducing us to this book. And uh, we'll see you again next time. Take care. Okay, take care. This is a story of a man named Cho Soo Lee. I am director Julie Ha. And I am director Eugene Yi of the film Free Chal Su Lee. You are now listening to Korea 24 on KBS World Radio. It's our closing segment now, Morning Edition Preview, where we take a look at some interesting features or reports coming out in tomorrow's newspapers, namely the Korea Times and the Korea Herald. And for that, we have in the studio with us Richard Larkin, our staff editor. Richard, hello. It's good to see you. Hello. Good to see you too. So what do you have for us first today? So I have something for history buffs. Apparently, Korean researchers have been able to work out how royal processions in the Joseon era evolved over time. The Joseon era, of course, was between the years 1392 and 1910. Che Young's article in the culture section of the Korea Herald has all the information, and according to Che, there were a total of 940 processions over the span of 535 years. All right, okay. So they look through all of that then. Can you yes. walk us through some of the big changes researchers found? So these findings uh, come from a study that was released by the Cultural Heritage Administration on Tuesday, and it seems to mainly cover processions to royal tombs. And it looks like the main changes seen over time were regarding roles in the processions. Towards the end of the Joseon era, Joseon kings saw their roles expand. The article doesn't mention how they expanded, just that the kings became more involved in the event. Uh, On the flip side, the number of guards accompanying the king decreased. The study reported that this was because farmers were no longer being drafted as soldiers. And overall, there were less people involved. Initially, there were around 4,500 people taking part. But towards the end, that number was 2,900. Interesting. So does the government have a a plan of what to do with these uh, findings? What's their uh, next step? Uh, so these findings will be included in travel programs around the 18 different sites that contain Joseon Royal Tombs. There will also be exhibitions on display at these sites in the future. Uh, so visitors will be able to find out more in detail about how these processions changed over time. So it's interesting how our knowledge of this period has been expanded right. through this research as well. OK, let's move on to our next article. What do you have for us? Uh, so Guangzhou Market in Seoul is a very popular place to eat traditional Korean food for both Koreans and foreigners alike. However, there was a recent controversy regarding the prices of the dishes there. It was found that merchants had been overcharging customers, so the Seoul government is coming up with plans to prevent that from happening in the future. And that's what uh, Jung Dae-yeon's article in the Metropolitan section of the Korea Times is about. Okay, before we look at the government's plans, can you tell Mm -hmm. us about the controversy itself? Uh, So it came to light after a famous travel YouTuber released a video of his visit to the market with two Vietnamese friends. They had ordered Korean-style pancakes, or Jun. The merchant gave them a small portion and charged them 15,000 won per plate. So that's about $11.40. You can actually see a picture of the dish size in the article. After the video was released, there were concerns that the merchant's actions could tarnish Korea's image. And that is when the Seoul government stepped in. 
Yes, that is quite scandalous. So what does the city government plan on doing then to prevent uh, this issue about overcharging? Uh, it is discussing possibly introducing a rule that merchants need to add the weight or the quantity of their items next to the prices. And also possibly adding a sample model that shows portion sizes. Also, on-site inspections will be conducted later this month. And there have been mixed reactions to this news. First, visitors believe that transparency is good, obviously, so that they know what they'll be getting for their money. Right. But merchants, however, are not so happy with the plan. They have said that the merchants caught overcharging should receive stricter punishment and that it is unfair to have all the stalls make these changes due to actions of some. Right. It sounds like there needs to be some more negotiation between the two Mm, sides. But something does need to be done, it seems, that Mm -hmm. it is unfortunate uh, that some market sellers uh, are doing Mm. this sort of uh, uh, unscrupulous practice. But yes, yes, it looks like something does need to be done. That's where we're going to wrap it up for Morning Edition Preview. Thank you for those stories, Richard, and we'll see you next time. Thank you. And that wraps up our show for today. Thank you for staying with us. We'll be back same time tomorrow. So we hope you can join us again then. I've been your host, Kwon Jangwo. And thank you, as always, for listening. Goodbye. World Radio offers all you need to know on Korea through its various programs. Are you into the latest K-pop tracks? Then K-pop Connection is your fix. Brian Ju brings you the best of K-pop and K-culture. On Korea 24, host Kwon Jang-hoo helps listeners digest all the biggest stories coming out of South Korea. Keep up with what's happening on the peninsula by listening to Korea 24. Learn about Korean folktales on Mondays with Global Audiobook, Once Upon a Time in Korea. If you're a bookworm, don't miss Books on Demand, a program that introduces Korean literature to the global audience every Tuesday. Our Wednesday program, Korea Today and Tomorrow, provides news on the latest diplomatic developments in and around the Korean peninsula. Want to go deeper than K-pop? Sounds of Korea takes a closer look at various traditional music every Thursday. KBS World Radio is your go-to channel for all things Korea. Tune in! KBS World Radio